I trust you will sense that you are among the people of God. Our greetings are not in vain. We really do greet one another as brothers and sisters from all around the world because we are the people of God, called out from the world, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by the Spirit, and journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. We love being together as the people of God. We're going to turn our attention once again to our series that we have been working through over the last several weeks. It's a five-week series called Living Under the Reign, the Rule of Grace. And if you've been with us, walking with us through some key chapters in the book of Romans, you've been, I hope, encouraged and challenged to realize the vast extent of grace. We live in this wonderful ocean of grace. And this morning, we'll we'll be continuing that with a a new development in this wonderful epistle. So, before we turn our attention to the Scripture, let's pray and ask God to indeed grab hold of our hearts that we might submit as we worship together. And so, our Father, we thank You that we can be here, that we can be together, and that we can enjoy Your Word together. And as we do so now, I ask that indeed you would open our ears, open our hearts, give us a real sense of submission to your Word. And Lord, I pray that we as your people would be willing to do business with you. We know we are not here to be entertained. We know we are not here simply to be comforted, though we pray for comfort where it is needed. We are here because we want to listen to you. So do a work amongst us, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last Wednesday, my wife and I had an opportunity to see law enforcement in Addis Ababa with a front row seat. We were sitting on a wooden bench. And in front of us was a a man with a black robe, seated on an elevated desk. He was looking forward at us, but the judge wasn't really looking at us. To our right was another person in a robe, a black robe, the prosecuting attorney, and, and she was shuffling some papers. And to our left came a stream of young men dressed in orange jumpsuits. They had all been imprisoned. And they were appearing before the judge to have something about their sentence deliberated. And it was very obvious to all that that there was a message being sent from this court as the policemen stood there with their guns ready to enforce the execution of the law. And the message that was silently proclaimed was, if you're going to live right in Addis Ababa, you'll follow the law. Cindy and I were there as witnesses to give testimony about a thief who had stolen a phone from us just a few days earlier. And so, the young man, the accused person, came up, next, came up into his place, and he was about to hear his sentence. And the judge explained upon his confession of his crime that, that he would receive two years 
in prison. The message was clear. Perhaps in prison you will learn that in Addis Ababa, if you want to live right, you've got to follow the law. This is the way life works for us, right? We live with law and laws. We have criminal laws. We have civil laws. Businesses have to follow corporate laws. That's just the way it is. If you are parents, you probably have some laws for your children. This is the way the house will run. And if you want to live right in my house, follow the laws. My wife is a school teacher, and she teaches kindergarten back in America, and she has 20 to 25 children in her classroom, and she often puts a list of Mrs. Anderson's laws up on the wall. And these kids learn, if you're going to do Mrs. Anderson's class right, you will follow the laws. That's just the way it is. But it's not just with this er this secular area of our life. We also think about our relationship with God this way. God has given us His law, right? We might think of the Ten Commandments, the the beautiful, wonderful law that God has given His people. Or, Or we could think of the the teachings and commands of Jesus, the the laws that have come right out of the lips of Jesus. Or or we might think of the commands or rules elsewhere in the New Testament that that came from the apostles, and we recognize that if we really want to live right, according to God, we follow the laws. Some of you come from an orthodox background, and and you have received teaching about about prayer and about fasting and about honoring the church and honoring the saints. There are are rules and laws to study. Some of you have come from from Muslim backgrounds, and you've been trained to, to follow the laws that will please Allah. This is how we live. And for many of us, we've worked so hard at this for so long that it has become for us like a, like a badge of honor. I'm a law pursuer. I seek God's law. I seek to learn it and to do it, which is all wonderful until you open up Paul's letter and he takes our badge and throws it on the ground and stomps on it. For he will say to us, you've been released from the law. Stop pursuing the law. He will even say, you died to the law. How can that be? I mean, how is it possible that, that... that we wouldn't be pursuing God's law. It seems preposterous. It seems ridiculous. It seems incredible that that would be in the Bible. What kind of preachers do you invite anyway? We don't expect a preacher to come up and say, don't pursue God's law. But that's what we hear in this great text this morning. 
So what we want to do is unpack that idea, that concept that the Apostle Paul gives to us and see if we can fully understand it. And we're going to do that by looking, first of all, at the contention itself. What does Paul contend? What is he saying? And then we will find that, that Paul doesn't just leave it, he backs it up by giving us his rationale. So after we look at the contention of Paul, we will look at the rationale, a couple of reasons of why he says, stop pursuing the law. And then having looked at the contention of Paul and the, the rationale behind it, we'll, we'll look at some implications for us today as we move forward without pursuing the law. Okay? So we are go back in the book of Romans, and we're continuing our understanding of what it means to live under the reign of grace. And Paul, what we're going to find, first of all, is this concept that believers are released from God's law. Believers are released from God's law because they're united with Christ. We're in Romans chapter 7. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, we'll turn to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to start off with verses 1 through 6. But, you know, since I'm not telling you a great story, I'm going to take you to the end of the story first. We want to look at the conclusion that Paul draws, and then we'll back up and see how he got there. Okay, so we're going to start with the conclusion, which is actually in verse 4, first part of verse 4, and also in verse 6. So Romans chapter 7, verse 4 says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. Oh, Verse 6 is going to say, but now by dying to what's bound us, we've been released from the law. So you all know I wasn't, I wasn't lying, right? That's what he says. You've died to the law. You've been released from the law. What is he possibly talking about? Paul is talking about the law, by the way. He's not talking about a misinterpretation of the law. He's not talking about a, a false understanding of the law. He's talking about the the law, capital L law, probably the law that God gave to Moses at Sinai. So this would include the Ten Commandments and everything else that followed that God gave to Israel so long ago at Sinai. And he's saying that wonderful law that you've had over you for these centuries, you have been released from it. Let's investigate a little bit how Paul could say such a thing. What he's going to do, he's going to say, I, I want to give you a an illustration of a principle. And the principle is this. Death changes the way you relate to the law. Death changes the way an application of the law is made. And to show that, he's going to give us an illustration, and an illustration of a woman who is connected to her husband by law, and her husband dies, and it changes her relationship to the law. We're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Let's look at this kind of illustration that Paul gives. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as they live? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. <laughs> but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress by the law, 
But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she is married another, to another man. This is pretty straightforward, right? Pretty simple. A woman is married to a man, and bef- if, as long as he is alive, there is a law that says, if you go and you connect yourself to another man, you will be known as an adulteress. You've committed adultery. What establishes that? It's the law. But if your husband dies, well, now you're free to go marry another man. The law about adultery no longer applies. Death changed the application of the law. That's the principle. Now Paul says, let me apply that to our relationship to God through the law. So, he says, therefore, verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. But now, By dying to what bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, Paul is now saying, look, this, this idea that death changes a relationship to the law, we can use that principle in our lives because you have been connected with the death of Christ. And if you were with us last week, you remember we talked at length in Romans 6 about how you were baptized, right, into Christ, that you were connected with Christ. We are united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. Paul's using the same concept. He says, hey, if you are united with Christ, you died with Him, and you died not only to sin, which he said in chapter 6, you also died to the law. The the law no longer has function or purpose in your life. But please note, this is not just, well, I'm free from the law and therefore I'm free, I'm free, I'm free to indulge myself and do whatever I want. What he says is you're free You've been freed from the law so that you might be married to another, to Christ, to the resurrected Christ. Isn't that a great thought? That we're married to the resurrected Christ so that, the text says, we might bear fruit to God. Now, we usually don't think in these terms, so uh, uh, maybe here's here's a way we can think about it. Thought about what Paul is doing in Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7. And he is talking about a whole new perspective for us as people united to Christ. So, basically what Paul establishes, of course, is the reign of God upon the earth. And what happened when Adam came, of course, in chapter 5, was that the reign of sin and death covered the earth. Remember that? Through Adam all sinned. Sin and death entered the world. That became the ruler of the world. And then God brought the law under sin and death as a mediator, so to speak, as a, as a way for people to relate to God and relate to sin and death. So, people 
found themselves under the law, under sin and death, trying to live for God, which was impossible. But everything has changed with Christ because Christ has come and removed sin and death so that now, not sin, but righteousness, not death, but life, that Christ himself reigns, which means that the law is no longer needed. Instead, grace has replaced law. The reign of grace is what it mediates between people and the rule of Christ himself so that we now relate to God through a whole different series. Is that clear? It makes sense? Wow. We live under the rule of grace. Grace regulates our relationship with God. Now, think about this for a minute. If this is true, and it is, this so radically changes the common conception of Christianity. If we went out on the street today and and did an interview, did a survey, and asked people what they thought about Christianity and what they knew about it, many people would say something like, well, yeah, they're they're a group of people who who live by a set of rules, a set of laws. They believe that that God gave them in the Bible, and and they work hard to be good people by keeping, keeping God's laws and God's commandments. And Paul takes that idea and he drops a nuclear missile onto it. Because that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is you're united to Christ. And we live under the rule of grace. Wow. In fact, to serve God right, the pathway is not follow the rules. The pathway is not Pursue the law. Many of us understand that the Old Testament said to remember the Sabbath, and the New Testament says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we work hard to keep that law, and we work hard to make sure we're always in church, and our church attendance is something we're going to pursue so that God does not get angry with us. And we believe that our pathway to serving God is by making sure we attend church. Attending church is good, but not by law. It's not the way it works. Many of us recognize that the Bible tells us to pray, and so so we've worked hard to put prayer into our lives, and and we have a quiet time, or we we know that we're going to pray in the morning and pray in the afternoon and and pray in the evening, and and we, we do all that we can to make sure we're following our laws for prayer. And prayer is a good thing, a wonderful thing, but not when we pursue it as a law. Because Paul says you're not under the law. That's not what regulates our lives. That's pretty hard to believe. You're all looking at me kind of like, are you sure about that? When you love the law, and you do, I do, when you love God's Word and the commands that are there, in fact, we know that from Deuteronomy 32, it says to Israel, when you do these laws, you will live. Wow. Wow. I don't want to give this up. 
And Paul writes to people who love the law probably more than you and I do. He, he writes to first century Jewish Christians perhaps in Rome who, who, who loved the law and who had ancestors for centuries who, who were, were, were so involved in the law they wrote it on their door frames. They taught it to their children. Every step in the field they were thinking about the law and what God said to them. And so Paul knows he's going to have to help people understand not only what the new concept is, but the rationale behind it. Because some people are going to say, Paul, you are, you are demeaning the law. You, 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 are, you are telling us the law is no good. Other people might simply say, look, I like the law. The law has helped me become a better person. You might say that. And Paul is going to say, no, no, no. Let me explain to you the reasons we cannot live by pursuing the law. It's a twofold rationale. So, first of all, the good law is used by sin to stimulate sin and death. Let me say it again. The good law, we don't pursue the law, we don't chase after the law because that good law is used by sin to stimulate more sin, to provoke more sin, to catapult us to commit even more sins. In other words, it's backwards. It's counterproductive. Paul makes this really clear in verses 7 through 13. So, let's read and look at how the inner sin uses the law to produce more sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Sounds like you're saying that, Paul. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead or dormant. Paul says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What we're seeing here is that inner sin in the presence of good law, catapults us into more sin. It stimulates more sin. In other words, sin is opportunistic and deceptive. Sin sees the law and says, ah, a law I can break. Look at the language that Paul uses. Verse 8, Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Ah, here's something I can break and show who's in charge. Verse 11, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. There's a law, something I can break. Verse 9, sin 
sprang to life. It's, it's, it's similar to the idea of a, of a lion that, that pounces on a piece of meat. Last week, I, I mentioned to some of you that I, I have a big black Labrador retriever, and he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful pet and a good theologian. God uses him to teach me a lot of things. So my dog often likes to, he stays in the house with me, and, and he will often sit under a window where the ray of sun is coming in, and he looks sound asleep. He is, for all practical purposes, dead. He's dormant, not moving. You walk by him, he doesn't stir. But in the kitchen, in another room, he has a bowl that we use for his food. And if I just barely touch that bowl, so it doesn't, I can't even hear the sound. Bam! That dog is up on his feet and right there <laughs> wanting food because he thinks there's food from that bowl. He's ready to pounce. Now, the bowl didn't call the dog. There's something in the dog that he knows in the presence of a bowl, I get food. That's exactly the way sin works with us when the law is present. Here's the law something good from God. But sin in us, Paul says, as soon as it it hears about a command, it says, ha, I'm going to sin more. And the result of that is death because we know sin produces death. Did you see it there in verse 9? He says, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Verse 11, sin seizes the opportunity and deceived me, and so through the commandment it put me to death. That's what happens. This is inevitable. And so Paul uses this, this wonderful illustration about coveting, about how it's impossible to resist sin springing up in us in the presence of the law and how it produces death. So he says, look, uh, the law tells me don't covet. Don't covet, don't covet. I don't want to covet. But I really like his shirt. I like their car. I like their house. Don't covet. What did Paul say? But I couldn't stop it. And by the way, this is the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Paul is not a substandard Jewish person. He's a lover of the law, committed to following the law, and he says, sin springs to life when it says don't covet, and I died. Whether you're talking about the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, or any other command in the New Testament, the result is the same. When we try to pursue commands of God like laws, There's something in us that will cause it to spring, sin to spring to life. You you all know this is true, right? You've experienced it. You know, we have a nice walkway here. Most of you will walk on the walkway. But if we put a sign up that says, do not walk on the grass, you know what you'll think? I never thought about walking on the grass until now. I can take my shoes off and I can run through the grass and the grass will feel so good and no one will even notice. I'm going to walk in the grass because that's what happens to us because of something inside of us. And Paul calls that thing 
the flesh. We'll talk about that in a second. God's law is not the culprit, though, right? Paul says, look, understand, God's law is good. It's holy and righteous. Don't blame God's law. Verse 7 says, it's not sin. It's holy and righteous and good. Verse 12, law shows us that, that sin is capable of great sinfulness. How utterly evil it is. It, it reminds me of uh, the locks that we might have on our door. Are locks good things? You have a lock on your doors, right? I have locks on my doors. Locks are good things. Why? Because when you lock your door, hopefully it keeps evil out. It's a good lock. Unless, of course, you're inside when there's fire in your house and you can't get out. Suddenly the lock is going to be used for evil because it'll bring your death. The law is good, but it can be… it, is, it brings for evil an opportunity for sin to do great evil and bring death. The law can point us in the right direction, but it cannot get us there. That's the first rationale for why we don't do, why we don't pursue God's law. Why do we have to be released from the law? The answer is because in the presence of the law, the good law, It stimulates more sin and death. Paul gives us a second rationale or a second reason for why it is that we have to be released from the law. And what he says is this, that law chasers experience a life of frustration. Law chasers, those of us who decide, I'm going to pursue the law, end up with a life that is filled with frustration. I want you to hear the frustration in Paul's voice as he writes verses 13 through 25. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, that's the law, to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am literally fleshly. I do not understand, uh, I'm sorry, that I'm fleshly sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me who does it. So, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, <sighs> evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I... I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. (laughs) What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? (laughs) Thanks be to God who delivers me through the Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh a slave to that law of sin. Do you hear the frustration? Paul is saying, look, you don't want to try to live under the law. If you try to pursue the law, if you try to be a life chaser, here's what you get, frustration, and it's no way to live. Paul describes it quite vividly for for us, doesn't he? He says, says, what I want to do, I pulled away from. I I, I want to keep God's law, but I can't because I have this this thing called the, the flesh in me. Now, when you see flesh in Paul's writings especially, often, often he's not referring primarily to this stuff that holds your bones together. I mean, we are all flesh. I notice none of you are ghosts. It's good. I'm glad you've got flesh. But Paul is using the term often in a, an, an ethical sense or a moral sense. And he's speaking of the, of the flesh is this set of desires inside all of us, kind of tied into our flesh, a set of desires that instead of being Godward, they're self-word. We are selfish people. And, and we all have this bent, not toward God, but a bent in our souls away from God. We, are, we have passions, he says, sinful passions. We are selfish. Instead of, being, um, as, in, instead of being the kind of people who would be obeying, we, we lean toward disobedience. Instead of being people who are submitting, we are people who rebel. Instead of being people who are self-sacrificial, we are self-preserving, right? Self-status, self-exaltation, and no one has to teach you that. We just are. And so Paul says, look, when I've got the flesh in me and you bring the law, I can't keep it. And there's a, a war going on. You just notice there in verse 22, he says, it's an inner war. My, my flesh is waging war trying to keep the law. And it's so bad that he concludes in verse 24 with, what a wretched man that I am. Ah! Does that sound like a wonderful Christian life to you? Yet I hear so many people say, oh, this describes me perfectly. This is exactly what I experience. I hope not. You may have a battle, but this isn't it. Because Paul said you died to the law. You've been released from the law. This is what happens when you are trying to pursue the law. And I I believe that what Paul is saying here is this is a frustrating life for anyone who decides they want to pursue the law. An unregenerate Jew, an unbeliever, a believer, it doesn't matter. Young, old, your flesh is not going to be conquered no matter how hard you pursue the law. So Paul says it's a life of frustration. Some of us say, well, that's just the normal Christian life. No, it shouldn't be the normal Christian life. 
Some of us might say, you know, I think with a little more effort, with a little more prayer, with a little more understanding, with a little more devotion to God, I'm going to overcome this. No, you won't. It's a deception that you can improve your way out of this condition. So we can try to pray more, but you'll end up failing. Or maybe you'll succeed. And you'll make a law about how to pray and how often to pray and how long to pray and how much to sweat when you pray. And maybe you'll succeed, and then you'll have pride. See what I did? It's inevitable. Maybe you'll have your laws about attending church, but eventually you'll fail because the law will tell you to go to church, and you'll say, I got to go to church, but I don't want to go to church. I'm going back to bed. And you'll feel guilty and condemned, and that's a life of frustration. So we've been released from God's law. We've been released from God's law because it was necessary, right, um, in, the, in the light of the fact that the, in the presence of the law, sin stimulates more sin. We've been released to the, from the law because if you try to follow the law, It'll be a life of frustration. So what does God want from us? What, what do we do in light of this? Let me say it this way. Serve God not by being a law chaser, but by the Spirit. We serve God not by being those who pursue the law, but by those who follow His Spirit. Paul has hinted at this idea in the text. By the way, when I say don't pursue God's law, I'm not saying go ahead and covet, go ahead and lie, go ahead and steal, do all you want. That's not what the point is, not at all. We're not to engage in immorality and slander and gossip and, and loving money, but the way we show that we're not doing these things is not because we're trying to go after the law, but we're following the Spirit. We don't go about life thinking, I can't lie. I don't want to lie. God tells me I can't lie. I really want to fulfill the law that I don't lie, because if that's our orientation, we will fail. But instead, we say, wait, I, I'm connected to Jesus, and He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth teller, and the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit that now works in my life to make me like Him. I want to be a truth teller. Or it may be that you say, look, I, 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 don't want, I don't want to steal. I've had trouble with stealing, and I know God says don't steal. I know that's a command. So we shouldn't be stealing, but it's not because we're trying to fulfill a command. Rather, it's because, wait, I'm related to Jesus, and He gives all we need. I don't need to steal. It, I need to be content with Him, and I have His Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus is changing me to be like Jesus. It's grace. It's grace. Our perspective changes from law changing to spirit submission. Now, Paul kind of hinted at this in verse 6. Did you notice it where he says in verse 6, now, by dying to what bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the 
Spirit. Now, the problem with reading Romans is he always does this, chapter after chapter. He says, there's a new way of the Spirit, but I'm not telling you yet. That's in chapter 8. You got to come back next week to hear about the way of the Spirit. I'm not telling you because I'm staying in chapter 7, okay? So, the way of the Spirit is actually, it's like Paul's movie trailer. It's his little dangling, a little bait to say, we'll talk about this, but right now I want to talk about being released from the law. This rescue is through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he says at the end of the text. One last clarification. I mentioned to you earlier that we still have a battle to fight. Many of you are thinking, wait, wait, I feel this battle. But our battle is not between our minds and the law. We're not trying to pursue the law. The battle we experience is between our flesh and the Spirit. Because the Spirit wants to take us toward godliness. The flesh wants to exalt and preserve ourselves. That's the battle that we embrace as God's people. But that comes up later as well. What a good thing. We've been released from the law. My life doesn't need to be filled with frustration. Rejoice. Rejoice. Our country has laws to protect us from thieves. That's good. Our courts have laws for upholding justice. That's good. Our roads have speed limits and our schools have regulations and, and our businesses must adhere to corporate law. That's good, that's good, that's really good. But while we need laws in many areas of life, that's not how we relate to God. We live under the reign of grace, released from the law because we've been united with Christ. How wonderful our salvation. And so, our Father, we thank You for the reality that grace reigns. Hallelujah! Amazing grace. Lord, help us to live in this grace that You have given to us, free from sin and death, free from the law, following Your Spirit. For Jesus' sake I ask, amen.
4 through 6. Here's how he says it. So then, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. But now, now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit rather than in the old way of the written code. Paul is saying, look, when you apply this principle to us, we have been released from all of God's law because you died with Christ and are united with Him. As the married woman was released from the law that regulated her behavior to her husband, so those in Christ are released from the law that formerly, the past time, regulated our behavior really to sin and to God Himself. And, and this is fascinating because Paul says the result is you're free to be married to another, to be married to Christ. Not so that you can be free from the law and do whatever you want, but you can be free from the law and you will do whatever you want, that's later, but you're married to Christ to produce fruit for God. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I'm not sure I got all this. Let's try it again, okay? So we've been working on Romans 5, 6, and 7. And if we try to look at these three chapters together, we, we kind of get this picture. Remember we talked about God introducing himself in Genesis 1 as the ruler of the world, right? But then Adam came, and what did Adam do? He introduced sin into the world and death. And so what the picture that Paul draws is that sin and death now become ruler of the world. You are all ruled by sin and death. And so later, God introduced under sin and death the law. The law came through Moses and regulated the behavior of the people of God. So there was sin and death and the law and then people under that reign. And then Christ comes and changes everything. For you see now, it is not the rule of sin and death that has been replaced with the rule of, of righteousness and life through Christ instead of sin and death through Adam. And the mediator now is not the law of God. The mediator is grace so that God's people relate to God and the life that He has for them not through law but by living under the reign of grace. <sighs> Amazing. It is, it, is, it is good news to be bound to this new master. Now, think with me for a minute. If this is true, and it is, it changes everything about the most common perception of Christianity. If you were to go out on the street today and, and do a survey or interview people, and you said, what is Christianity? What's it like to be a Christian? Most people would probably say something like, well, 
Christians are people who follow God's law. I mean, I know they think the, the Bible has God's law and the commands of God, and, and then they work really hard to obey what God has told them to do. And most of them are good people, but they're, they're following God's commands. And for many people, that's what they think Christianity is. And Paul takes that idea and he sends a nuclear missile into it and blows it up. Because Christianity is not a a religion that is a made for people to follow the law. We are, we are people who are united with Christ 